Story sixteen, section one of Captures by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story sixteen, section one. Had a horse. Part one. Some quarter of a century ago, there abode in Oxford a small bookmaker called James Shrewin, or more usually Jimmy a runabout and damped-down little man who made a precarious living out of the effect of horses on undergraduates. He had a so-called office just off the corn, where he was always open to the patronage of the young bloods of Bullingdon and other horse-loving coteries, who bestowed on him sufficient money to enable him to live. It was through the conspicuous smash of one of them, the young Gardon Colcoon that he became the owner of a horse. He had been far from wanting what was in the nature of a white elephant to one of his underground habits, but had taken it in discharge of betting debts, to which, of course, in the event of bankruptcy, he would have no legal claim. She was a three-year-old chestnut filly, by Lopez out of Calendar, bore the name of Calliope, and was trained out on the downs near Wantage. On a Sunday afternoon, then, in late July, Jimmy got his friend, George Pulcher, the publican, to drive him out there in his sort of dog-cart. "'Must have a look at the Bilkin mare,' he had said. "'That young cocoon told me he was a corker, but what's third to referee at Sandown, and never ran as a two-year-old. All I know is she's eaten her head off.' Beside the plethoric bulk of Pulcher, clad in a light-coloured box-cloth coat, with enormous whitish buttons, and a full-blown rose in the lapel, Jimmy's little, thin, dark-clothed form, withered by anxiety and gin, was, as it were, invisible. And compared with Pulcher's setting sun, his face, with shaven cheeks sucked in, and smudged in eyes, was like a ghost's under a grey bowler. He spoke off-handedly about his animal, but he was impressed, in a sense abashed, by his ownership. What the hell? was his constant thought. Was he going to race her, sell her? What? How, indeed, to get back out of her the sum he had been fool enough to let young Cocoon owe him, to say nothing of her trainer's bill. The notion, too, of having to confront that trainer with his ownership was oppressive to one whose whole life was passed in keeping out of the foreground of the picture. Owner! He had never owned even a white mouse, let alone a white elephant, and an horse would ruin him in no time if he didn't look alive about it. The son of a small London baker, devoted to errandry at the age of fourteen, Jimmy Shrewen, owed his profession to a certain smartness at sums, a dislike of baking, and an early habit of hanging about street-corners with other boys, who had their daily pennies on an horse. He had a narrow, calculating head, which pushed him towards street-corner books before he was eighteen. From that time on he had been a surreptitious nomad, till he had silted up at Oxford, where, owing to vice-chancellors, an expert in underground life had greater scope than elsewhere. When he sat solitary at his narrow table in the back room near the corn, for he had no clerk or associate, eyeing the door with his lists in a drawer before him, and his black shiny betting-book ready for young bloods, 
he had a sharp, cold, furtive air, and but for a certain imitated tightness of trouser, and a collar standing up all round, gave no impression of ever having heard of the quadruped called horse. Indeed, for Jimmy, horse was a newspaper quantity, with figures against its various names. Even when, for a short spell, hanger-on to a firm of cheap-ring bookmakers, he had seen almost nothing of horse. His racehorse hours were spent ferreting among a bawling, perspiring crowd, or hanging round within earshot of tight-lipped knobs, trainers, jockeys, anyone who looked like having information. Nowadays, he never went near a race meeting, his business of betting on races giving him no chance, yet his conversation seldom deviated for more than a minute at a time from that physically unknown animal, the horse. The ways of making money out of it, infinite, intricate, variegated, occupied the mind in all his haunts to the accompaniment of liquid and tobacco. Gin and bitters was Jimmy's drink. For choice he smoked cheroots, and he would cherish in his mouth the cold stump of one long after it had gone out, for the homely feeling it gave him while he talked or listened to talk on horses. He was of that vast number, town-bred, who, like crows round a carcass, feed on that which to them is not alive. And now he had a horse. The dog-cart travelled at a clinking pace behind Pulcher's bobtail. Jimmy's cheroot burned well in the warm July air. The dust powdered his dark clothes and pinched sallow face. He thought with malicious pleasure of that young spark cocoon's collapse, high-handed lot of young fools, thinking themselves so knowing. Many were the grins, and not few the grittings, of his blackened teeth he had to smother at their swagger. "'Jimmy, you robber! Jimmy, you little blackguard!' Young Sparks, gay and languid, well, one of them had gone out. He looked round with his screwed-up eyes at his friend George Pulcher, who, man and licensed vitualler, had his bally independence lived remote from the quality in his paradise, the green dragon, had not to kowtow to anyone, went to Newbury, Gatwick, Stockbridge, here and there, at will. Ah, George Pulcher had the ideal life, and looked it. Crimson, square, full-bodied. Judge of a horse, too, in his own estimation. A leery bird, for whose judgment Jimmy had respect who got the office of any clever work as quick as most men. And he said, "'What am I going to do with this blinkin' horse, George?' Without moving his head, the oracle spoke in a voice rich and raw. "'Let's have a look at her first, Jimmy. Don't like her name, Calliope. But you can't change what's in the stud-book. This Jenning that trains her is a crusty chap.' Jimmy nervously sucked in his lips. The cart was mounting through the hedgeless fields, which fringed the downs. Larks were singing, the wheat was very green, the patches of charlock brightened everything. It was lonely, few trees, few houses, no people, extreme peace, just a few rooks crossing under a blue sky. "'Wonder if he'll offer us a drink,' said Jimmy. "'Not he, but help yourself, my son.' Jimmy helped himself from a large wicker-covered flask. "'Good for you, George. Here's how.' 
The large man shifted the reins and drank in turn, tilting up a face whose jaw still struggled to assert itself against chins and neck. "'Well, here's to your bloomin' horse,' he said. "'She can't win the derby now, but she may do us a bit of good yet.'" Part Two The trainer, Jenning, coming from his Sunday afternoon round of the boxes, heard the sound of wheels. He was a thin man, neat in clothes and boots, medium in height, with a slight limp, narrow grey whiskers, thin-shaven lips, eyes sharp and grey. A dog-cart stopping at his yard-gate, and a rum-looking couple of customers. "'Well, gentlemen?' "'Mr. Jenning, my name's Pulcher, George Pulcher. Brought a client of yours over to see his new mayor, Mr. James Shrewen, Oxford City.' Jimmy got down and stood before his trainer's uncompromising stare. "'What mare's that?' said Jenning. "'Calliope.' "'Calliope? Mr. Colkins?' Jimmy held out a letter. "'Dear Jenning, I have sold Calliope to Jimmy Shrewen, the Oxford bookie. He takes her with all engagements and liabilities, including your training bill. I'm frightfully sick at having to part with her, but needs must when the devil drives. Garden Colkin. The trainer folded the letter. Got proof of registration? Jimmy drew out another paper. The trainer inspected it, and called out, Ben, bring out Calliope. Excuse me a minute, and he walked into his house. Jimmy stood, shifting from leg to leg. Mortification had set in. The dry abruptness of the trainer had injured even a self-esteem starved from youth. The voice of Pulcher boomed, told you he was a crusty devil, and him a bit of his own. The trainer was coming back. My bill, he said, when you've paid it, you can have the mare. I train for gentlemen. The hell you do, said Pulcher. Jimmy said nothing, staring at the bill. Seventy-eight pounds, three shillings. A buzzing fly settled in the hollow of his cheek, and he did not even brush it off. Seventy-eight pound! The sound of hoofs roused him. Here came his horse, throwing up her head, as if inquiring why she was being disturbed a second time on Sunday. In the movement of that small head and satin neck was something free and beyond present company. "'There she is,' said the trainer. "'That'll do, Ben. Stand, girl.' Answering to a jerk or two of the halter, the mare stood kicking slightly, with a white hind foot, and whisking her tail. Her bright coat shone in the sunlight, and little shivers and wrinklings passed up and down its satin because of the flies. Then, for a moment, she stood still, ears pricked, eyes on the distance. Jimmy approached her. She had resumed her twitchings, swishings, and slight kicking, and at a respectful distance he circled, bending, as if looking at crucial points. He knew what her sire and dam had done, and all the horses that had beaten or been beaten by them, could have retailed by the half-hour the peculiar hearsay of their careers. And here was their offspring in flesh and blood, and he was dumb. He didn't know a thing about what she ought to look like, and he knew it. But he felt obscurely moved. She seemed to him a picture. Completing his circle, 
he approached her head, white-blazed, thrown up again in listening, or scenting, and gingerly he laid his hand on her neck, warm and smooth as a woman's shoulder. She paid no attention to his touch, and he took his hand away. Ought he to look at her teeth, or feel her legs? No, he was not buying her, she was his already. But he must say something. He looked round. The trainer was watching him with a little smile. For almost the first time in his life, the worm turned in Jimmy Shrewen. He spoke no word, and walked back to the cart. "'Take her in,' said Jenning. From his seat beside Pulcher, Jimmy watched the mare returning to her box. "'When I've cashed your check,' said the trainer, "'you can send for her.' And, turning on his heel, he went towards his house. The voice of Pulcher followed him. "'Blast your impudence! Get on, Bobtail! We'll shake the dust off here!' Among the fringing fields the dog-cart hurried away. The sun slanted, the heat grew less, the colour of young wheat and of the charlock brightened. "'The tyke! By God, Jimmy! I have hit him on the mug! But you've got one there! She's a bit of blood, my boy, and I know the trainer for her! Pullman! No blasted airs about him!' Jimmy sucked at his cheroot. "'I ain't had your advantages, George, and that's a fact. I got into it too young, and I'm a little chap. But I'll send the—my check tomorrow. I got my pride, I hope.' It was the first time that thought had ever come to him. Part Three Though not quite the centre of the turf, the Green Dragon had nursed a coup in its day, nor was it without a sense of veneration. The ownership of Calliope invested Jimmy Shrewen with the importance of those out of whom something can be had. It took time for one so long accustomed to beck and call, to mole-like procedure, and the demeanour of young bloods, to realise that he had it. But slowly, with the marked increase of his unpaid-for cheroots, with the way in which glasses hung suspended when he came in, with the edgings up to him, and a certain tendency to accompany him along the street, it dawned on him that he was not only an out-of-bounds bookie, but a man. So long as he had remained unconscious of his double nature, he had been content with laying the odds, as best he might, and getting what he could out of every situation, straight or crooked. Now that he was also a man, his complacency was ruffled. He suffered from a growing headiness connected with his horse. She was trained now by Pullman, further along the downs, too far for Pulcher's bobtail. And though her public life was carried on at the Green Dragon, her private life required a train journey overnight. Jimmy took it twice a week, touting his own horse in the August mornings, up on the downs, without drink or talk, or even cheroots, early morning, larks singing, and the sound of galloping hoofs. In a moment of expansion, he confided to Pulcher that it was bally olesome. There had been the slight difficulty of being mistaken for a tout by his new trainer, Pullman, a stoutish man with the look of one of those large sandy Cornish cats, not precisely furtive, because reticence and craft are their nature. But, that once over, his personality swelled slowly. This month of August was one of those interludes. 
in fact when nothing happens but which shape the future by secret ripening an error to suppose that men conduct finance high or low from greed or love of gambling they do it out of self-esteem out of an itch to prove their judgment superior to their neighbors out of a longing for importance george pulcher did not despise the turning of a penny but he valued much more the consciousness that men were saying old george what he says goes knows a thing or two george pulcher to pull the strings of jimmy shrewen's horse was a rich and subtle opportunity absorbingly improvable but first one had to study the animal's engagements and secondly to gauge that unknown quantity her form to make anything of her this year they must get about it that young tough her previous owner had of course flown high entering her for classic races high-class handicaps neglecting the rich chances of lesser occasions third to referee in the three-year-old race at sandown spring two heads was all that was known of her and now they had given her seven two in the cambridgeshire she might have a chance and again she might not he sat two long evenings with jimmy in the little private room off the bar deliberating this grave question jimmy inclined to the bold course he kept saying the mare's a flyer george she's the l of a flyer wait till she's been tried said the oracle had Pullman anything that would give them a line yes he had the shirker named with that irony which appeals to the english one of the most honest four-year-olds that ever looked through bridle who had run up against almost every animal of mark the one horse that Pullman never interfered with or interrupted in his training lest he should run all the better who seldom won but was almost always placed the sort of horse that handicappers pivot on but said pulcher try her with the shirker and the first stable money will send her up to tens that horse is so darn regular we've got to throw a bit of dust first jimmy i'll go over and see Pullman. in jimmy's withered chest a faint resentment rose it wasn't george's horse but it sank again beneath his friend's bulk and reputation the bit of dust was thrown at the ordinary hour of exercise over the long mile on the last day of august the five-year-old hangman carrying eight stone seven the three-year-old parrot seven stone five what calliope was carrying nobody but Pullman knew the forethought of george pulcher had secured the unofficial presence of the press the instructions to the boy on calliope were to be there at the finish if he could but on no account to win jimmy and george pulcher had come out overnight they sat together in the dog-cart by the clump of bushes which marked the winning post with Pullman on his cob on the far side by a fine warm light the three horses were visible to the naked eye in the slight dip down by the start and through the glasses invested in now that he had a horse jimmy could see every movement of his mare with her blazed face rather on her toes like the bright chestnut and bit of blood she was he had a pit padding in his heart and his lips were tight-pressed suppose she was no good after all and that young cocoon had palmed him off a pup but mixed in with his financial fear was an anxiety more intimate as if his own value were at stake 
From George Pulcher came an almost excited gurgle. See the tout! See him behind that bush? Thinks we don't know he's there. What-o! Jimmy bit into his cheroot. They're running, he said. Rather wide, the black hangman on the far side, Calliope in the middle, they came sweeping up the long mile. Jimmy held his tobaccoed breath. The mare was going freely, a length or two behind, making up her ground. Now for it! Ah! She had the angman beat, and ding-dong with this parrot. It was all he could do to keep from calling out. With a rush and a clutting of hoofs, they passed. The blazed nose, just behind the parrot's bay nose. Dead heat all but, with the hangman beaten a good length. There he goes, Jimmy. See the blank scuttling down the hill like a blinkin' rabbit. That'll be in tomorrow's paper, that trial will. Ah, but how to read it, that's the point. The horses had been wheeled and were sidling back. Pullman was going forward on his cob. Jimmy jumped down. Whatever that fellow had to say, he meant to hear. It was his horse. Narrowly avoiding the hoofs of his hot, fidgeting mare, he said sharply, "'What about it?' Pullman never looked you in the face. His speech came as if not intended to be heard by anyone. "'Tell Mr. Shrewen how she went.' had a bit up my sleeve. If I'd hit her a smart one, I could have landed by a length or more. That's so, said Jimmy with a hiss. Well, don't you hit her. She don't want hittin'. You remember that. The boy said sulkily, All right. Take her home, said Pullman. Then, with that reflective averted air of his, he added, She was carrying eight stone, Mr. Shrewen. You've got a good one there. She's the hangman at level weights. Something wild leaped up in Jimmy. The hangman's form unrolled itself before him in the air. He had a horse. He damn well had a horse. Part 4 But how delicate is the process of backing your fancy. The planting of a commission. What tender and efficient work before it will flower. That sixth sense of the racing man, which, like the senses of savages in great forests, seizes telepathically on what is not there, must be dulled, duped, deluded. George Pulcher had the thing in hand. One might have thought the gross man, incapable of such a fairy touch, such power of sowing with one hand and reaping with the other. He intimated rather than asserted that Calliope and the parrot were one and the same thing. The parrot, he said, couldn't win with seven stone. No use thinking of this calliope. Local opinion was the rock on which, like a great tactician, he built. So long as local opinion was adverse, he could dribble money on in London. The natural jump up from every long shot taken was dragged back by the careful radiation of disparagement from the seat of knowledge. Jimmy was the fly in his ointment of those balmy early weeks, while snapping up every penny of long odds, before suspicion could begin to work from the persistence of enquiry. Half a dozen times he found the little cuss within an ace of blowing the gaff on his own blinkin' mare, seemed unable to run his horse down. The little beggar's head was swellin'. Once Jimmy had even got up and gone out, leaving a gin and bitters untasted on the bar. Pulcher improved on his absence in the presence of a London tout. Saw the trial meself, 
Jimmy don't like to think he's got a stiffen. And next morning, his London agent snapped up some 33s again. According to the trial, the mayor was the hangman at seven stone two, and really hot stuff, a seven to one chance. It was none the less with a sense of outrage that, opening the sporting life on the last day of September, he found her quoted at one hundred to eight. Whose work was this? He reviewed the altered situation in disgust. He had invested about half the stable commission of three hundred pounds at an average of thirty to one, but, now that she had come in the betting, he would hardly average tens with the rest. What fool had put his oar in? He learned the explanation two days later. The rash, the unknown backer, was Jimmy. He had acted, it appeared, from jealousy. A bookmaker, it took one's breath away. Backed her on your own, just because that young cocoon told you he fancied her? Jimmy looked up from the table in his office, where he was sitting in wait for the scanty custom of the long vacation. She's not his horse, he said sullenly. I wasn't going to have him get the cream. What did you put on? growled Pulcher. Took five hundred to thirty and fifteen twenties. And see what it's done. Knocked the bottom out of the commission. Am I to take that fifty as part of it? Jimmy nodded. That leaves an hundred to invest said Pulcher, somewhat mollified. He stood, with his mind twisting in his thick, still body. "'It's no good waitin' now,' he said. "'I'll work the rest of the money on to-day. If I can average tens on the balance, we'll have six thousand three hundred to play with and the stakes. They tell me Jenning fancies this diamond stud of his. He ought to know the form with Calliope, blast him. We got to watch that.' They had. Diamond Stud, a four-year-old with eight stone two, was being backed as if the Cambridgeshire were over. From fifteens he advanced to sevens, thence to favoritism at fives. Pulcher bid on it. Jenning must know where he stood with Calliope. It meant, it meant, she couldn't win. The tactician wasted no time in vain regret. Establish Calliope in the betting and lay off. The time had come to utilize the shirker. It was misty on the downs, fine weather mist of a bright October. The three horses became spectral on their way to the starting point. Pullman had thrown the parrot in again, but this time he made no secret of the weights. The shirker was carrying eight-seven, Calliope eight, the parrot seven-stone. Once more in the cart, with his glasses sweeping the bright mist, Jimmy had that pit-patting in his heart. Here they came, his mare leading, all riding hard, a genuine finish. They passed, the shirker beaten a clear length, with the parrot at his girth. Beside him in the cart, George Pulcher mumbled, She's the shirker at eight stone four, Jimmy. A silent drive, back to the river inn, big with thought. A silent breakfast. Over a tankard at the close, the oracle spoke. The shirker, at eight stone four, is a good odd chance, but no search, Jimmy. We let him know this trial quite open, weights and all. That'll bring her in the betting, and we'll watch Diamond Stud. If he drops back, we'll know Jenning thinks he can't beat us now. If Diamond Stud stands up, we'll know Jenning thinks he's still got our mare safe. Then our line'll be clear. We lay off the lot, 
pick up a thousand or so and have the mare in at a nice weight at Liverpool. Jimmy's smudged in eyes stared hungrily. How's that? he said. Suppose she wins. Wins? If we lay off the lot, she won't win. Pull her. George Pulcher's voice sank half an octave with disgust. Pull her? Who's talking of pullin? She'll run a bye, that's all. We shan't ever know whether she could have won or not. Jimmy sat silent. The situation was such as his life during sixteen years had waited for. They stood to win both ways with a bit of handling. Who's to ride? he said. Pullman's got a call on Docker. He can just ride the weight. Either way, he's good for us. Strong finisher and a rare judge of distance. Knows how to time things to a T. Win or not, he's our man. Jimmy was deep in figures. Laying off at sevens, they would still win four thousand and the stakes. I'd like to win, he said. Ah, said Pulcher, but there'll be twenty in the field, my son. No more uncertain race than that Valley Cambridgeshire. We could pick up a thou as easy as I pick up this pot. Bird in the and, Jimmy, and a good handicap in the bush. If she wins, she's finished. Well, we'll put this trial about and see how Jenning pops. Jenning popped amazingly. Diamond Stud receded a point, then re-established himself at nine to two. Jenning was clearly not dismayed. George Pulcher shook his head and waited, uncertain still which way to jump. Ironical circumstance decided him. Term had begun. Jimmy was busy at his seat of custom. By some miracle of guardianly intervention, young Colquhoun had not gone broke. He was up again, eager to retrieve his reputation, and that little brute Jimmy would not lay against his horse. He merely sucked in his cheeks and answered, I'm not laying my own horse. It was felt that he was not the man he had been. Assertion had come into his manner. He was better dressed. Someone had seen him at the station, looking quite a toff, in a blue box-cloth coat, standing well out from his wisp of a figure, and with a pair of brown race-glasses slung over the shoulder. Altogether, the little brute was getting too big for his boots. And this strange improvement hardened the feeling that his horse was a real good thing. Patriotism began to burn in Oxford. Here was a snip that belonged to them, as it were, and the money in support of it, finding no outlet, began to bawl. A week before the race, with Calliope at nine to one, and very little doing, young Colquhoun went up to town, taking with him the accumulated support of betting Oxford. That evening she stood at sixes. Next day the public followed on. George Pulcher took advantage. In this crisis of the proceedings he acted on his own initiative. The mare went back to eights, but the deed was done. He had laid off the whole bally lot, including the stake money. He put it to Jimmy that evening in a nutshell. We pick up a thousand, and the Liverpool as good as in our pocket. I've done worse. Jimmy grunted out. She coulda won. Not she. Jenning knows, and there's others in the race. This wasp is going to take a lot of catchin', and Deerstalker's not out of it. He's a hell of a horse, even with that weight. Again Jimmy grunted, 
slowly sucking down his gin and bitters. Sullenly he said, "'Well, I don't want to put money in the pocket of young Cocoon and his crowd. Like his impudence, back in my horse, as if it was his own. We'll have to go and see her run, Jimmy.' "'Not me,' said Jimmy. "'What? First time she runs. It won't look natural.' "'No,' repeated Jimmy. "'I don't want to see her beat.' George Pulcher laid his hand on a skinny shoulder. "'Nonsense, Jimmy. You've got to, for the sake of your reputation. You'll enjoy seeing your mare saddled. We'll go up overnight. I shall have a few pound on Deerstalker. I believe he can beat this diamond stud. And you leave Docker to me. I'll have a word with him at Gatwick tomorrow. I've known him since he was that eye, and he ain't much more now.' "'All right.' growled Jimmy. End of story 16, section 1.